At 4 a.m. on Thursday, April 5, 1917, four harbor patrol boats pulled up at Pier 4 in Hoboken, one of a dozen major wharves along the Hudson River on the New Jersey shoreline. They'd shoved off an hour earlier from Governor's Island and crossed Upper New York Bay in a driving rainstorm. Two hundred soldiers and customs agents led by John Bayliss, a 33 year old lieutenant in the Revenue Cutter Service, soon to be renamed the U.S. Coast Guard. It was raining like the devil, he recalled. It was a vicious, bitchy night. Nearly three years had elapsed since Irvin Cobb reported on the opening weeks of a titanic struggle that still showed no sign of ending. Worse, the war was going terribly wrong for the Allies. But with their backs to the wall, they were about to receive a life saving boost from the United States. As his boat bucked in the current, Lieutenant Bayliss and his small fleet slipped past the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, both dimly illuminated and hard to see in the darkness, then past a destroyer, number 533. A low slung, two stacked warship. Although Bayliss couldn't make her out clearly in the rain, he knew she was rocking at anchor somewhere off the Fatherland's stern, her two mounted guns trained on the big ship. The destroyer had arrived five days earlier to make sure the captains of the interned superliner and eight other German passenger ships tied up at the Hoboken piers wouldn't be tempted to make a run for open water and Germany. Bayliss, a veteran of a 16 month around the world cruise on a four masted British sailing ship and a graduate of the Coast Guard Academy, had prepared hard for this morning. His men were also well trained and well armed for what had to be done. The lieutenant, who was from Jamaica, New York, and acquainted with the Hoboken docks and the layout of the Fatherland, hustled his squad out of the patrol boats and marched them by twos down the pier alongside the German ship, which towered overhead. Climbing up the main gangway, Bayliss headed for the bridge as soldiers armed with carbines and shotguns fanned out along the decks. The German crew, at least those who still remained on the ship and happened to be awake, understood what was happening and stayed out of the way. The New York papers had been buzzing for weeks with stories and news bulletins saying that the ship would be seized any day. Treasury agents joined the soldiers, along with nearly four dozen New York City Reserve police officers who took up positions on the pier. When Bayliss approached the bridge, one of the Fatherland's officers was waiting for him. The lieutenant curtly told him the U.S. government was taking over the ship and that he needed to vacate the vessel immediately. I protest, the officer said in stiff, clear English. His objection was a formality. The officers from all the interned ships had agreed weeks earlier on what to do in case they needed to surrender their vessels. Leaving the bridge, the German joined a handful of other officers and about 300 sailors who remained from the Vaterland's original crew of nearly 1,200. Most of those men had managed to get back to Germany on ships from neutral countries. Several hundred others had opted to apply for U.S. citizenship, some taking jobs in the many German restaurants in New York City and Hoboken, 
or working as electricians or in other skilled trades. None of the remaining crew members offered resistance as they were led off the ship under guard and taken to Ellis Island, where they were given a choice to apply for citizenship or be sent to a federal prison in Georgia. The details for the surrender of the most prized ship afloat had been worked out the night before aboard the Vaterland, when three American officials met with the commanding officers of the nine German ships interned in New York Harbor. The captains were cautioned not to resist or damage their vessels. Everyone in the room that evening understood that America was about to declare war. The critical moment had been coming for weeks, gathering momentum ever since Germany had unleashed unrestricted submarine warfare two months earlier, sinking an average of 50 Allied ships a week and pushing England to the edge of starvation.